live. Welcome back, pop culture theologians. We're so glad to be back with you after a little break, a little breakity break. We needed some time, but we'll talk about that in a minute. We are so glad that you've stuck along with us for this amazing new um, season that we're going to be venturing into. We are the Pop Culture Theologians. You can follow us on Twitter at Pop Theologians and on Facebook at Pop Theologians. You can follow me at jerickson 85 on Twitter. And Marcy, my long-awaited friend who I've been missing dearly in Florida, where can we follow you? <laughs> right now, down this bottle of champagne. Um, <laughs> that's I, right. Right. So John, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at I am the men who can. Um, and then on see, like, <laughs> John suggested we drink through this episode and now I'm like gone. You can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can. I'm pretty active. Um, I've been particularly active the last couple, um, of months. So Yeah. Marcy, it's so back. good to hear you. <laughs> yeah, so John, you and I have had like an interesting couple of weeks since we finished um, our Game of Thrones coverage. We had said, you know, we were, um, and we still are, that we would be covering all of the shows that we have covered before when their new seasons come. So um, Discovery of Witches and The Purge. We also announced that we would be covering, um, oh my gosh, what is its name, John? The Handmaid's Tale? No, that's the point. That's his today. Dark materials. <laughs> but yeah, his Dark Materials, but that doesn't come out till the fall, and we're it so excited. Not. And so John and I kind of texted each other and we're like, hey, what if we covered Handmaid's Tale season three? We haven't, we didn't do season one and two, um, but it feels appropriate for this moment in time to do Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and we were like, yeah, let's do it. And we announce it on our social to all of you who we love. And then life, when shit went down shit went down um so i was doing work at um i was actually um in we were invited the folks that i work with to standing rock to the to the pipeline to talk about indigenous rights in the u.s uh and we were so i was in north dakota north dakota and um oh, yeah. and working kind of on deconstructing uh kind of pockets of white supremacy that are starting to pop up everywhere and starting isn't even the right term. John's been on the ground for women's rights, uh, particularly every kind of, state's passing an abortion ban. Exactly. Um, and then I've been on the ground here in Florida uh, as the threat of these ICE detention raids um, have hit the ground. Uh, I'm going to be really honest. Um, like it's been a really, really difficult couple of weeks um, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I currently live in Homestead, Florida, which is right next to Redlands, Florida, um, both of which are heavily migrant worker farmer communities. I, um, I, I live in farming, uh, farming land outside of Miami, and um, my community in particular heavily targeted. Um, we've already had raids. I have a child detention center like four miles from my house, which we have protested at multiple times. Um, our Congress people can't get eyes in, but my guess is it is as horrific as any of the other concentration camps that are now existing um, across this country, privately run. So, so some stuff got in the way. We planned on dropping, you know, episode, <laughs> like a double episode a week ago, and then everything happened, and we were like, you know what, like, if we are truly part of the resistance, 
our podcast can wait. And, um, and so we've been on the grounds. Um, Thank so you for waiting. Listening. We appreciate you guys like listening in. We know that there's people who have done like the full five episodes. Our plan is to drop uh, double episodes. So this, uh, this episode will cover episode one and two. We're going to drop uh, at the same time, episodes two and four, and then obviously five, three and, three and four, and then five and six will go together. So, uh, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a lot. There's been a lot going on and we know that there's a lot going on for you guys. And I want to take a second to acknowledge that um, there's a lot of really beautiful television happening right now that is extremely traumatic. And so covering it is difficult. Watching it is difficult. I'm thinking of The Handmaid's Tale. I'm thinking of When They See Us, right? Um, and, and to say that like, this is the golden age of television. And I know that that's like super cheesy to say, um, but I also understand that we're all kind of watching with a lens of self-care because it is difficult to watch right now because everything on our news is mimicking stuff. So speaking of news, uh, we're going to break down really quickly, kind of like the biggest news of the week and jump into episodes one and two. So that covers it, right, John? That's where we've been. I think so. I'm still not over Game of Thrones, the final season, <laughs> but more on that later. I, I agree. Danny forever. Uh, for me, it's the Queen of the North, but Danny forever, a hundred percent. I feel Danny are reclaiming Liberation the theology, my yeah, friends. Yeah, a hundred percent. I feel very confident still. Weeks after that, uh, Daenerys is exactly what you look like after you do resistance work for a very long time. I'm like exactly. losing hair, losing weight, losing my mind, like, <laughs> and I don't so, even see the half of it. So this week's news. So Marcy, what the fuck happened? And in, in general. A lot. Um, why don't actually you lead us? Uh, oh, talk to me about uh, what. You. Talk to me about the not surprising news that came out of the Trump uh, camp this week. Um, so multiple things have been going on in the world that is on fire, um, as usual. So the Trump. Uh, administration announced that they will be doing ice raids um, throughout the country in major cities, including Los Angeles, Miami, Houston, Chicago. Um, Pretty much and all the metro blue cities. All the metro blue cities, <laughs> a lot of them who have declared themselves um, safe havens um, and safe cities. And so that was happening. Actually, that got skirted as of yesterday of us um, recording this. Uh, they're going to give Democrats, apparently, the Trump administration announced they're going to give These Democrats two weeks to get their act together around um uh immigration reform so uh yes. so what so this, basically what this you, actually means is uh he is holding lives hostage for two weeks because the narrative that he thought he was spinning lost control so he will say give me the border wall and i won't do raids the democrats appropriately so are not going to give a border wall permission so for the next two weeks humans are being held hostage as a tool for nothing because this is uh the whether or not the raids happen does not make these and i can't I'm, I'm consciously using the concentration camp term uh my grandfather is uh was a parisian jew his family uh extended family died all over at death camps in europe so i feel very comfortable like comfortable using that term um this is what they are Death camps are what comes after, and if the news coming out of these camps is correct, that's not very far behind. 
um, so, children are already dying in yes, these camps. Uh, three lawyers went into one in Houston this week and found four unresponsive children amongst the masses, like curled up in floors, like absolutely unresponsive, and no one was reacting. So, um, so if you have a few dollars, please donate to Rarices, you know, donate to the ACLU, who's doing a lot of work legally on the ground. Yep. Um, you know, definitely bring attention to your community. There's so much that we need to all be doing. And if you are on the ground, like so, all, so many of us, thank you, thank you, thank you for putting your thank life you on the line. Everyone, um, everyone, everyone, if you're in the cities that declared that their PD will not collaborate with ICE, that is fucking amazing um there were a couple cities that were like we're not cooperating like this is outside of like our ethical bounds so uh also um we had news of another woman coming forward to say that she was raped by donald trump uh i think the 13th or 14th accuser it is the 16th accuser 16th i stand corrected thank you it is the 16th accuser um i think the thing that kind of strikes me the most here is that look he told us who he was right from day one so like acting surprised that like this continues to happen and that no one cares is i don't i don't have the emotional capacity to do this so his um the woman who came forward um eg carol Jean carol um this is interesting. The, the full expose came out in the book section of the New York Times, not the front page. And, and I think this matters because that is how much we have normalized our president being a rapist. It doesn't make the fucking front page. Uh, I will say that it's been a hell of a fucking week. Uh, we almost went to war with Iran. We have concentration camps that no one, like that even folks who voted for Trump are like, shit, right? Um, so while I understand that like chaos theory is you throw enough bullshit, we all get overwhelmed and can't deal with it. Um, there is something particularly as we are about to speak about Henry's Tale, there is something really disturbing about rape ending up in your like book section of one of the most powerful newspapers uh, in the world. Uh, and as a woman, for me, the fact that the man who is highest in office is now on his 16th accuser and is unapologetic about it he has openly pretty much admitted that he like i mean he grabs them by the pussy um it's just yeah it's something to behold uh and to women listening uh we're <laughs> i know that we're all watching this and like every time someone's like well why didn't she come forward earlier i'm like because here's a man who's literally admitted that he does this shit there are 16 other women who have come forward and nothing's happened like this is why women don't come forward. So exactly. But on 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 a brighter note, John Mazeltov, it happy is Pride Month. It happy Pride Month to you. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Although every day is Pride in our households, Marcy. That is that is very true. We both have Pride households. Um, I mean, you have like pansexual polyamorous dogs, right? <laughs> right. Right. So right. I'm just saying every day is a lovely day to be in the in the Cox Erickson household. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's um it's a beautiful it's a beautiful time to be part of the LGBTQ community. Um I think that we it it is difficult to kind of watch 
you and I have talked about this before. Um, it, there is a bittersweetness in some, being able to criticize the over-commercialization of pride where I'm like, everywhere I look, it's a rainbow. And like, I, I want to be uh, cynical about it, but honestly, with as much horror as we are seeing, um, it, it just has felt kind of beautiful to, to see people just vibrantly out uh, during this June. I went to two plays this past week. Um, I went to Come From Away and to- Which is amazing. Oh my, my God, if, if you haven't seen Come From Away, go get tickets, it is so good. And then I saw The Bronx Tale, which was not good. But um, the playbills had the rainbow flag at the top um, versus the traditional yellow playbill. And I was really moved by that. Um, so happy pride, everyone. Every color of the rainbow is beautiful. Every form of self-expression and self-identity is in and of itself a fucking miracle. Uh, so we're so happy everyone is here. Um, I think, John, it's time to, before I go much further in this bottle, get into our breakdown of episodes one and two, which you know I'm excited about because we're going to spend all season talking about my time in a cult. <laughs> Blessed be the fruit. Blessed be the fruit. <laughs> Let's do this. All right, so episode one. Hulu dropped the first three episodes all at once, which was kind of great. Except because yeah, they, they want us to stay up till 3 a.m. Right. Except when they do that, I literally think it's worse than one once a week because you get a real chunk of a taste of the show. Then you're like, oh shit, now I do have to wait for the serialized weekly. But um, we left off, right? Um, we're not gonna, we're gonna assume that you guys have been watching, or else why would you be listening? Um, other than deep love for us, which, which we appreciate. Um, we left off with June handing Emily Nicole and, and staying back in Gilead. Uh, how did you feel about that, John, when it happened last season as the, series, as the season finale? I have a lot of mixed feelings about the show. I mean, it's, it's beautifully shot. It's wonderfully done. I mean, we'll talk about a lot of stuff that works for me in the show um, for the first two seasons and this season specifically. Um, I know in regards to when this season was, you know, announced, you know, Margaret Atwood, you know, said that she's writing a sequel. I think that a lot of people see the commercialization of The Handmaid's Tale and there's a lot of materials that can go there because the storytelling is so rich. So I had a lot of mixed feelings. I'm kind of like, you know, I just feel sometimes like they could be a victim of their own success. Luckily, I think I was wrong. I mean, I was like, I get why she chose the, I get why she chose to stay behind. I think it was an act of self-liberation. And I think it was yes. a liberation for the other people um, yes. that, are, that were left behind. And especially her daughter, like almost Sally Field, like not with, not without my daughter. Oh my right? God. You also have trauma from not without my daughter. Yeah, but like, and so I was, I, it took me, um, it was kind of like one of those episodes when I watched it, I had to stop back and be like, okay, I get why she stayed. And I get why, you know, I think the first two episodes and the third and the fourth, and we'll talk about that, you know, are so well done. I have very little critiques of this show. Um, I think that this season is probably just as good as the first season and June, uh, June getting her bitch back. Okay. Yeah, okay. so I agree with you entirely. When June handed over Nicole, I was really pissed. And I think, like, for me, it was that Serena had made 
And I have mixed feelings on Serena, though I do love that performance. Serena had made a sacrifice. All the Marthas had made a sacrifice. And so the idea that she would put any of those lives in danger by staying felt very selfish to me. I will, I will admit two things now that I think when I first saw that season ending of season two, that I think of is I'm not a mother. And so I think fundamentally the idea of her leaving Hannah behind didn't capture the part of me that it should have. So for me, it was like, how could you betray the resistance that did everything to save you and your daughter and not thinking a mother would never leave her daughter behind? Like that's just, there was no option for her to leave. She safely got her daughter out. She got her new daughter out. Her new daughter out. Yes. While simultaneously, like Nicole is safe. Hannah is not. Of course, she's going to stay back for Hannah. So I think that is... That, that something about this episode brought closure to my frustration at the end of season two. So, um, so you and I had said we would be covering kind of like what worked, what didn't work this season, not the show from beginning to end and kind of actually flexing our muscles a little bit as theologians of kind of the religious thing, like themes that we see um, come up. But one theme that I think is really working this season in particular, and we saw it at the end of season two, is the women are the resistance, mm-hmm. right? And and like the Marthas coming together and realizing that May Day, which is the resistance that we know of, right, that, that coordinated getting um, Emily and June out, that coordinated helping Luke in season one, like May Day and June have finally collided. They don't trust her yet. Like, it takes a bit for them to trust her. But we're finally, this is what I felt was lacking last season. Like, we're finally introducing June to the actual resistance versus her resisting. Um, And I will say, I think that's a normal progression. When we are parts of oppressive systems and or cult authoritarian regimes, the first deconstruction is the personal one, right? Like, the first deconstruction is, I'm going to resist. Um, and then the second one is, I can't do this alone. I need allies, right? So, well, we see Serena resisting, right? And then ultimately the price that she pays. Um, and we see the other, you know, wives of the commanders, uh, you know, abandoning her after she speaks up and is punished, right? Right. But I think what you see is like, with that (laughs) Bible reading and finger chopping, um, yeah, it's interesting because. June, when she speaks to Serena, says, you know, Serena only sees that half the women left her there while someone chopped off her finger. And June's like, half the women stayed, right? That's, yeah. that's important to note. Uh, what do you think of I Serena think there's something. Oh, go for it. I think there's something really powerful, though, about most of the imagery that we're seeing within these episodes. It's, um, there's a lot of water images. There's a lot there of um, baptismal images. That. And we're going to talk about that as they come really prolifically a part of the episode themselves. But there's a whole sense of like rain washing clear, you know, and clean rebirth. Um, And I think that's like going teeing up to your point right now near the end of the episode with um, Serena burning down the marital bed after she finally realizes, because she's going through a crisis of faith in many ways, right? Right. And I I think that that burning of the bed is so much 
bigger than Serena having a traumatic, like a trauma response. Um, I think as viewers, we're supposed, she's not just burning down the bed that she slept with her husband in where the ceremony of, 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 because she wouldn't, she's, I don't think she has still wrapped her brain around the fact that what they did to June is rape. But I think that she fundamentally is starting to, to act out um the 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 trauma that she has experienced because there is trauma there um yeah and it's sometimes that trauma is so deep that you don't understand that you're in the moment when that's occurring right right and so she's literally coming out of this cocoon right and june's been coming out of that cocoon and you see her when she shuts the door on emily and gives her nicole she goes take care of her right you see her fully out of the cocoon going okay like i'm either gonna live or i'm gonna die and i'm gonna figure this out but not not, yeah like this is now on my terms kind of deal um and i think that yes i think serena burning the bed is a moment of her taking burning the bed which inevitably leads to burning down this entire fucking house um which leads to her that is also a cleansing right so we think of water right water is more closely associated with cleansing in christianity but you look at indigenous communities and um like smudging and the burning of certain um certain plants is actually cleansing so um i think that that is like a symbolic kind of like smudging the shit out of her house till it burns down but the bed in particular so even though i don't think she recognizes yet that they that she is one of the architects of a system that has systemically dehumanized women raped them stolen their children uh and and i the bed was also a symbol of taking away her autonomy, right? As a woman, as a, as a mother, because she right. wasn't able to have children. So was, by burning it, that down. Yeah, I think it does have something to do with her own personal, like, because here's the thing. I struggle with giving Serena. So Serena in the books is older. And I think yeah. part of the problem here is we have humanized Serena because she is this beautiful, blonde, amazing performance of a woman. Um, Serena is one of the architects of Gilead. Like Serena is one of the ones who thought of the ritual of raping women like handmaids. Uh, so, so I struggle with uh, the show entirely doing what forgiving they're doing with her. Serena. Um, I'm not sure it's about forgiving her. It's, it's rewriting who she is. It's, I mean, if Margaret Atwood says this is the version of Serena I envisioned, okay. But like, Mm, okay yeah. uh, so so we'll get we'll come back to serena um on something more relevant to today um emily crossing uh into canada as a refugee Ugh. i girl won her uh she really i honestly think girl she got your emmy get it alexis Bedell. thank you and the emmy goes too but when you look at the ways in which the, the this what this means to today's world. I mean, you know, crossing the river to save your child. I mean, basically almost, I mean, the baby almost drowns. Um, it's, there's so much there to unpack. And also like she comes down and she risks everything for, you know, not her child, but a child of Gilead and comes back and, you know, 
there's that scene where she's underwater and you don't know what's going on and she's being followed by that drone and then when she finally reaches out and she's on the other side and she has to make sure the baby's alive that that baby cry is almost like a rebirth that shock to the system that we're in safe territory the imagery is not by accident right like um if you look at some of the horrific like nazi propaganda happening right now against um brown immigrants it's like you know if these parents really love their kids they would never swim across the fucking river right and it's like how unsafe is the land that you would risk your child in the water like that's what people seem to miss right and like june and emily both know that there are chances that nicole would not make it through this journey but it it is better to have a Nicole that had a shot at a a better life, a shot at not being like cattle for men. Um, That was still better than leaving her in Gilead. And I think like that is extremely important when we think of the current narrative with, with immigrants who are leaving very dangerous countries. It's not just poverty, it's violence towards them, their children. And so getting to the to a a refugee point at our border which by the way is legal it is not illegal to seek asylum ever um you know this is exactly what emily is doing and emily knows the risks in that river but that there's the risk is insignificant to them taking this girl back to gilead were you triggered when, you know, she crosses over and the Canadian agent says, would you be prosecuted for being a woman in your country, like, at all? Um, I, I will admit that as a Hispanic woman, the entire scene was really difficult to watch. Um, I think because, like, <laughs> I don't want to get emotional. I, um, I spent this whole weekend, pre- like, preparing my community for raids, right? Um, I spent this whole weekend, like telling people what their rights were. Like I had to call my dad to explain to my mom and my aunts who are not as fluently bilingual and have very strong accents, um, what their rights are. Um, because historical precedent, when you think of Kristallnacht, uh, during the third Reich, um, which was the first, like kind of really big round of raids is they rounded up people like they, they, it, it wasn't a science, right? So like, if like I have an aunt who works at a warehouse, if they're rounding up Latinos at the warehouse, there's mixed documentation in there. She's a legal resident, but like, I, legal. But that doesn't mean they, like she won't be made to disappear. And so when Emily is asked like, are you unsafe in your country? There's a feeling in my heart over these like last three weeks where it's like, yes, I am unsafe. First off, I'm, I'm a Latina woman <laughs> of Jewish descent with a very Jewish last name. Uh, and I am a woman, <laughs> period. And stop. Uh, it is extremely dangerous to be a woman, period. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really difficult. But I want to say that, and I think this was purposefully done by the show, they beautifully covered how we could treat refugees. I mean, from the second that that officer finds Emily and Nicole, immediately establishes refugee status by having her confirm it. Then when they take her to the hospital, I don't know if you realize this, John, it's all female staff. And that is on purpose. Because if the trauma that's been inflicted on you is by men, psychologically, it can be very difficult to trust 
men, particularly when you're just coming out of the trauma. So the fact that the Canadian refugees, uh, like committee association or whatever had been like, we're not going to put these women near men for a while until they are ready. Right. We will let them tell us when they're ready was such a beautiful thing, such a beautiful thing. And like, yeah. Emily's scenes in this episode as well as in the rest of the episodes are stunning. And the, but I think the way in which they're handling trauma um, and coming out of a cult, because remember Emily in season two was in the colonies, right? And they brought her back. And oh, then Emily's she, been, she's been, she's had a female circumcision done on her. She yeah. was in the colonies. She like, I mean, beat, threatened with death. Aunt Lydia beat the shit out of her. Um, I mean, to survive what Emily has survived is so so against the odds right yeah. and i also want to say that the moment where they ask her to hand over nicole and she says no and they no. respect that they understand that that would do trauma to both of them if they're not ready versus yeah. we are ripping families apart like that was extremely moving to me um yeah. And then I would say the final thing that kind of worked in this episode that we will continue to kind of explore is Serena as a person is struggling with the butting of heads of her beliefs and her reality. You and I have talked about this a lot. So what I think we're supposed to be getting out of Serena's struggle is Serena is fundamentally a full-on evangelical believer in the world she has built in Gilead. Or at least she was until her finger got cut off. Yeah. Until she realized that she she created a world that she now will be the victim of. Exactly. That is actually beautifully worded. So Serena would not be an ally if she had not gotten hurt. And I'm, I want to say this call out in particular to privileged women that I, no one needs you as an ally only when your like, son is gay or only if you've been assaulted. Like, you don't need to go through trauma to suddenly become an ally. Like, we will take you. We will open our arms to you. But there is something to be said about the fact that a lot of times, and like this is, this, is, this is something that like people debate all the time and there is no right answer to it. Like what comes first, right? And also do we judge for when it comes? Like do I judge the parents who didn't give a shit about like gay rights until they had a gay son? I mean, I can, but it, it's hard if, if like, it's hard because I'm not sure I particularly win anything by doing that. Um, Serena herself is also coming out of a, a cult, right? But she's coming out of a cult and, you know, traumatized because she was one of its most fervent believers, right? Uh, you know, she June was forced. She helped build it. And now she's like, I don't want this anymore. And I, and I want to acknowledge, which we have talked about before, that you can simultaneously be a victim and an oppressor at the same time. Exactly. Right. But I, that does not mean that I can't be critical of the fact and that I can Serena you. 
yeah, Serena did not wake up until she realized that when she said no women should read, that included her. And that when yeah, she said also, that, like, kids should When it happens to her, love. that's the thing. When it happens to her, it's a problem. When she loses her baby, when she loses her finger, right? Like, it's, the, it's a systematic definition of, like, white privilege. When something finally happens to you, it's like the world's on fire, right? right? But she has to have all these things happen to her to finally realize that she is itself being complicit as well as a perpetrator of this violence. Right, and we can live in that discomfort. I just want to acknowledge that I live in that discomfort with Serena. And, and I say this maybe because I identify with Serena in certain ways of, like, being extremely privileged, having for a very long time in my life, been a part of like extremist Christianity and now no longer being a part of it, like, um, like 10 years removed. Like, I think like, that doesn't mean I didn't go to March for lives. Right. Like that doesn't mean I didn't hurt people. That doesn't mean that like, like we can atone for our sins. Right. And I use sins in a secular way. Um, but like, I also have to reckon with the fact that like, during the time that I was a part of a super, super like Catholic cult, I did harm and harm that I, I wouldn't even know the ripples of. And it wasn't until I felt the harm that I started to deconstruct and be like, oh shit, this whole system's bullshit. But I had been upholding that system for a very long time. So that's probably my own thing. Like I, we will continue to talk about it, but she lives in, a, in an interesting place for those of us who are simultaneously privileged and oppressed. So. Let's talk about what didn't work in this episode. But she too also returns. Well, I just want to round out this conversation. Yeah, but let's she do it. also, like with June leaving, um, like with June leaving um, Nicole with Emily, uh, Serena leaves her home and returns to her mother's home. She goes back to her mom in that way, right? And so there's this whole like larger motherhood question at play here and I think we're really seeing that be worked out like Serena goes back to her home life right her mother and well, and and you see two very different mothers Serena leaves her role as Mrs. Waterford because her home life is obviously really fucked up and we'll talk about that but what she does is she exits the Waterford household which is effectively for her Gilead for a hot minute and burns and, it down and burns it down and 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 actually takes a, st- a step out, which is, which is she, part of resistance. Do you think she was trying to kill herself? No. Like if June wouldn't have stopped her? No, I think she symbolically just, there was something about it that she needed to see. And I know this because That's a great I had, like, I had a really good, I had a really heavy box of stuff from my time in my Catholic cult, right? And, um, I did this actually when we lived in California. Um, there came a moment in my healing process where I, I dumped everything in a metal trash can and burnt it. And that included a lot of, sh- like, there's a lot of shit I, I regret burning, like letters and journals and a bunch of stuff. But I needed to see it go. Like, I didn't need reminders of those years of my life that, like, that were just really damaging to me as a person. So um, that's a really good way to put it, Marcy. She needed to see it. She needed to yep. see everything been in quotes real. And she's realized that it's not real. She needed to see something real. 
the the burning is both symbolic and real and that does offer healing to you to a certain extent like and it's the fact that she like metaphorically she's never going back to that fucking bed yeah or with commander waterford right for now that we know of. for now um but real quick before we wrapped out what worked the soundtracks the soundtracks oh, in the these show in this the show is just it is just so good um whoever's doing the music curation and i'll find out their all the emmys give them a shout out just re- yeah it's just really good it's very very good i don't think it's gonna win against uh the scoring of <laughs> game of thrones but um but there is something really awesome about the juxtaposition of very recognizable pop music to horror like <laughs> it's just exactly and I, but that's why the show's so good because a lot of people were wondering when they started the show like you know there's not a lot of dialogue right it's a lot of in june's head and then when they realize that they do a lot of like voiceovers with june and she's really frank with the audience like it, it's a it presents a different show right and you know uh the handmaid's tale came out in uh 1985 right and so I think some of the reasons that they've done a lot of the changes that they've done, like, like in, in 1985, uh, Serena and Commander Waterford used to be like televangelists, like, like eyes of Tammy Faye televangelists. And that makes sense for 1985, but moving it, uh, and, and kind of setting this in the near future, um, and her inner dialogue being more like, fuck this shit is, is such a good direction even for those of you who don't have sailor mouths, because it's such like June is forever. June worked in 1985. She will work up until whenever we turn into Gilead and they burn all our books. Like, um, and the music grounds it too, because something I've noticed is most of the music that they're using is, is like eighties, early nineties. And the reason for that is they would have stopped making music. So all they have is memories like snapshots, like um, of the music that used to be. And I think that that is also a really cool nod to the fact that like, the reason there's no future music in this is because there's no music in a future like Gilead, so. Exactly. All right, so, so what, what didn't did? work? <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a few things that don't work for me. And I think you and I actually are on the same page about a lot of this. Um. So the kidnapping of Nicole and the entire thing not being a big deal in the sense of it, like not having like dire consequences is it is asking me to suspend belief to a place that I can't like, like Serena got her finger cut off for reading, but like Nick can hold the commander hostage in a room and June and Serena can conspire with the Marthas and get this baby out. And like, the only thing we know that really happened is that the commander gets demoted and that like people are looking down on the fact that they couldn't, that, that like the Waterfords couldn't keep a baby safe. Like this doesn't particularly make sense. Like babies are the most precious commodity in Gilead. One goes missing thousands of police forces, thousands, like millions, gajillions. So like, I don't buy it. We've been bought, we've been sold that bill of goods for two yes. seasons. Yes. So the fact that like they would deal with this in house, crazy. Yeah. Especially like when there was that whole episode with the lady with one eye. I can't remember what her name is, but like you know when yeah with Janine when you know she kidnapped the baby. It was you, you know it's like 
well, whatever. Janine's not my favorite. I mean, what I get I the character Janine. right. That she's a victim of severe trauma, and you see how that manipulates someone into believe. You know, it's we can have a long discussion about that. But like, you know, when she's on that bridge with the baby, like it's like they pulled out the jets. You know, like well, I mean, like this is not the first. This is not the first problem with the Waterfords. Like, and so for me, like, if there's smoke consistently coming out of this house, like. They literally will put someone on the wall if they even think they're a sex traitor. But you're telling me that like Commander Waterford can't keep an eye on his children, his wife, his handmaid, and everyone's like, all right, you do you. Yeah, like, sure. Exactly. Um, so, so that I think like, I, I understand why they're asking me to suspend belief because the story has to go, go on. Um, this is past where the books are, the books. We're this well is past, past where the book narrative ends, right? So the book narrative ends on the end of season one, basically. Pretty much, yeah. So for me, I don't think you and I actually agree on this one. June's relationship with Serena, I'm I'm struggling with. I um I was not it. it I only put it. I, it it works for me because I'm putting it in context with the other episodes I've seen. Um, but they ask you to really suspend June's had a relationship with Serena before in the previous seasons. And it's always bit June in the ass as a result, because Serena's like, well, I mean, they were like their little duo, right. When they were like working behind the scenes, like pretending to be the commander. And I get that. I just, there is no part of me that, that thinks that there is a version of June that would that would strategically look at Serena as an ally, sure, but that emotionally would connect with Serena as an ally, no. Like, yes, she handed you your child to smuggle out, but like, this is still the woman who completely approved of of raping you, who still considers that child her miracle child that came from rape, like who who has had opportunities to resist in larger ways and hasn't like, I just don't buy an emotional relationship between June and Serena happening in this moment. We'll talk a bit later about like how I think it could develop. Um, but yeah. I don't know. And then the commander being kind of like, Meh. like, why'd you do like, he's just not angry enough for me. If children is why I'm you over the commander. I think yeah. I wrote that. Like I'm just hashtag over Mr. Waterford. Yeah. If children is the reason you created Gilead, then you're not pissed enough. And like he's something also such a putz, like he's just a putz. But I mean, have you met dudes in cults? Cause they are. Well, <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. Mic drop. No, I'm, I'm serious though. Like, the, yeah. the dudes that I knew in extreme forms of Christianity and Catholicism were dudes who were like, I'm just going to say it. They were like self-hating, super traumatized, like desperate for a large ego, completely like broken men. Yeah. Like men desperately seeking approval from a system, men desperately seeking power by thinking of themselves as greater than women. Um, and anytime you challenge that, they break. They get angry or they break. So I think maybe what we're seeing here, if I'm being generous, is that him seeing that he was so dumb, they were able to pull this all off like under his feet and that he doesn't control his wife or his handmaid or his like cop or anything may have broken him a little bit. 
um, which my guess is that leads him to more religiosity. Um, but like, no, I have dated these dudes, like, and they're just, they're kind of like a, a, they're just tragic. Like they're tragic because they can wield so much power, but they are so useless. So useless. So, so I think that covers episode one. Yeah, that does. I think uh, episode one was a lot. It was a great episode, all I have to say. Right, right. So we're moving on to what works in episode two. Take a swig of your champagne if you are drinking with us. Ooh, and we hope you are because this show is a lot to get through. Yeah. And I would say if it, if it all feels heavy, go watch Toy Story 4. But Toy Story 4 is devastating. So. Oh, my God. Okay, Marcy, no spo- hashtag no spoilers. That is not a spoiler. Literally, it's not. I'm just saying, like, everyone, I'm with you as you watch <laughs> Toy Story 4. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what works? Well, why don't I want to? I'll kick us off in episode two. I'm going to go a little bit down on our timeline, but um, uh, really specifically, the thing that worked for me the most, and this is a theme within the rest of the sh- of the episodes, is that women are going to bring the system down from the inside, specifically women of color. Which These women, the Marthas. I mean, women. yeah. I mean, this whole cult is going to be brought down by the women. Women are so critical to religious history in general. Um, my doctorate is in religious American religious history. And when you look at the role of women in evangelical um, religions, as well as within the black church and other and um, very specific it's women who have Catholicism, it's women who are there and who are the spine of these churches. And if they want to, they'll bring it down. And that's where you hear a lot of Marcy, Marcy and I talk about a lot of time, whereas women are the biggest um, pieces of resistance, but women are also some of the biggest oppressors. Right. I've always Because said, everyone is complicit within some form of patriarchy one way or another. Right. Like Catholicism is one of the last forms of religion that bars women from leadership. I literally have said, if for one week, Catholic women didn't show up, one week, we didn't show up to shit. Literally, we would have the women, the female priesthood by that next week. We, when I was still Catholic, we were everything. Every position is filled by women other than the ones of power. Everything. Who drags kids to church on a Sunday? It's not their dad. It's their fucking mom. Mom. Who runs CCD classes? Who runs the ministries that help the poor? Who runs that? Like, literally, I'd like, it would take one week. And if we wanted to actually take over, we could. But the will to take over is not there because some people love to sit by their oppressors versus be underneath them. And those are the women who oppress other women in systems. So, yes. So I agree with you. Uh, We're seeing May Day in particular, the resistance that is primarily made up of women of color, really give us some insight into the underbelly of the resistance. And they're welcoming June into this uh, part. Right. right. Um, so they take her on this like field trip <laughs> to, um, to save Let's dress a- you as a, as a Martha and let's go for some fun. As a Martha myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bada bing. Bada bing. I'm like five years away from not being <laughs> viable to be a handmaid. Um, thank God. Um, goddess. But... <laughs> Uh, They take her on this field trip to kind of test her out on a resistance raid. They're going to save a physicist, I think it is. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting because there's a sign when they're going down town. I'm just going to use that word because I can't even make sense of like what this 
um, geographically is. There's a sign that says, through work, we are cleansed, um, which is interesting. Through, because through the purge, we are cleansed. I thought of the purge, too. <laughs> like, Me, uh, too. One, look, cults love this shit. Cults love to prioritize suffering as an offering, right? Um, also, not just cults, authoritarian regimes. Uh, Auschwitz had famously, like at its entrance, uh, work will set you free, right? So, so I think it's int- we are supposed to understand this evangelical patriarchal takeover, you know, the sons of Gilead, to be representative of something like the Third Reich. Like, that is, that is what we are dealing with. It is like supreme white male power mixed in with the theocracy of like an evangelical Christianity. And we know it's evangelical based off the book, not the show as much, but the show has even highlighted that like Catholic priests and, uh, were hung, St. Patrick's was hung. And like the p- small part of me that grew up Catholic thinks that's because Catholics prior to the evangelicalization of Catholicism in the like 70s, Catholics were freedom writers uh, with Martin Luther King. They have actively worked in resistance movements in the South. So, um, and by the South, I mean South here and South America, again, hashtag liberation theology. So, um, but yeah, like it's interesting to see this nod of like, um, there is historical precedence for Gilead, but also be wary that it's happening. Yeah. Um, and then what did you, so I've been chewing a lot on the idea that like, there is a prioritization of getting like scientists out. Um, because my guess is that the sons of Gilead are not particularly pro-science, right? No, I definitely think so. And I think when you saw the explanation of her being a chemistry teacher, right? Like she can right. make bombs. And, you know, when you look at the resistance, because there's a lot of references to them overtaking Chicago still, right? Right. Um, they need people and scientists there to, you know, utilize whatever technologies are left. I mean, from what I'm guessing within this Gilead structure, um, you know, it's really set to like the East Coast, DC, you know, I don't know how far inward it's really gotten if there's just at Chicago. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen like a map, you know, to better understand that. Right, right. So, so we'll come back to this when we talk about Commander Lawrence and um, June having a conversation about this. Logistically, it makes sense to me that they're getting the scientists and the folks that they need their brains out of um, of Gilead. Uh, I do think it has larger implications, though. But Aunt Lydia. so I will say the thing that I'll, I I know I wrote this, but like Aunt Lydia being back, I mean I love this bitch. Like I love her so much. I mean Anne Dowd is a national treasure. I mean I totally agree with you, and we we won't get there to the doesn't work section on on your point. Like, but her being back, like I live for her screen time because she's she's a magnificent actress. I mean, you just love to hate this character, but then there's a part of you that's like, you feel sorry for this character. And I don't know what it is about me, but with Aunt Lydia trying to get June to like, she manipulates her and tries to get her to confide in her and then like just attacks her. Like you're like, oh, Aunt Lydia is back. That's so funny. I (laughs) had the opposite reaction. So 
I again, I mean, it's sick and it's twisted. Huge, but, you know. huge fan of Anne Dowd. If you have not watched The Leftovers, which is another show that deals with like religi- religiosity, cults, and and dealing with our own mortality, she is stupendous Faith. in that. Faith, yeah. Um, I just think Aunt Lydia was dead, and they did a credence from <laughs> Harry Potter here. Uh, but again, I'm not going to fault anyone for wanting Anne Dowd on TV. I want her in everything. I will yeah. say. Uh, from a personal level, Aunt Lydia's are very real in cult settings. The, there are particularly mentors who simultaneously play the mentor role while they abuse as well. So, like, when she tries to, like, get June to confide in her, you know, like, what is Commander Lawrence like? Like, what, are you okay? Like, has stuff happened? And when June's, like, a little bit snippy and then she, like, attacks her, that is a very real thing like very real thing um there was this like super abusive monsignor when my my husband when brent was uh thinking about being a seminarian who simultaneously i mean metaphorically would suck the dicks of any of these guys who were considering being priests but the second they let him down like i mean literal like just psychological mental abuse and so Aunt Lydia is exactly who I, like, I recognize her, I know her. Um, and I think part of the problem is actually something that you stated. There's a part of you that thinks that that brokenness has to come from somewhere, right? Which is why you feel for her. Because it's like, no one ends up that fucked no one ends up that fucked up without having like some horrible backstory. And I'm going to be real with you, Aunt Lydia is the Dolores Umbridge of this, of this show. Um, you shouldn't be feeling that way towards her. You and for not- those of you following along, your first, well, one of your first Harry Potter. One of my first Harry Potter ones. Uh, yeah, I'll take a drink with you. Um, you should not be feeling anything for Aunt Lydia. And if you are, then the system is working. Because it's the idea that bad people don't do bad things because they're bad. Like they do things because of X, Y, Z. Both can be true. Again, you can have been abused, and I'm sure we are going to get on Lydia's backstory. Nothing excuses her behavior. Nothing. Yeah, I think we get Aunt Lydia's backstory in the episode that she probably dies in. Like, I don't know if she makes yeah, it. Yeah, we haven't gotten end. it yet. Yeah, and I think that we do when she dies. Like, they do that in The Leftovers with that character, you know, in regards to who she plays. But, like, I am. I understand we need a villain. There's multiple villains, but like Aunt Lydia, like I'm. I want her. I I need more of her in this episode because I want to see what that backstory is. That's so funny. I'm like, I don't need any more Aunt Lydia's because Aunt Lydia's keep it going. They're the fucking church ladies who keep it going. So, um, so moving on to like you said, the way the show is treating trauma. This episode focuses a lot on Luke and Emily, um, and their struggle to kind of like adapt post and I don't want to use the word salvation post escape um I'm trying to think from my own experiences what it felt like well you look at post exit it's it's a it's a post I'm back almost like you know it's like with Luke really struggling to accept Nicole with Emily being able to even let Nicole out of her arms to her not being able to call her family, the way in which they're dealing with trauma. And also I think 
I, I really think Luke's resentment towards Emily at getting out and fully knowing that June was like, take the baby. Well, and the fact that, like, he's like, so you're just not going to call your family. And the fact that, like, they both have, like, he feels like if, if, if she can be with her family and she's not doing it, he's not thinking like she's in a position of trauma. He's resentful that, like, Emily could call her family, not under, understanding that it's not that simple to deconstruct trauma. Um, and then Emily, I think, is surprised herself. I think every single moment in Gilead, she would have given her left nut to like be able to call her her wife and to, to talk to her son. And she is surprised when she gets across the bridge, metaphorically speaking, that she can't bring herself to do it. Um, a really good example of this in modern Christian theology and trauma is we have a really good friend, um, our friend Kate, who focuses on evangelical sexual mores and purity culture. And so one of the things that she has studied is what happens to girls who grew up in super sex negative, sex repressed religions post deconstruction. Um, so so I would be one of those girls, right? I grew up in a super sex negative household, super sex negative religion. Um, and, and so I have like 20 something years of like, my body is dirty. My body is not my own. My body is also at the mercy of the male gaze and the male and like, and like male domination through theology. And then I go to grad school. I deconstruct. I am free. What? I meet yeah. you. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's, <laughs> I'm going to be free. No, like, I mean, it was a process, but here's the thing that like Kate studies is these girls like me don't just overnight become okay. And like, so it's like, it's not like I, you go from being like a super sex negative, repressed, like psychologically traumatized person to like, fuck yeah, sex positivity. Like I get to be a slut now. Like you literally can't do that. Like trauma weaves itself into your fibers. Like um, this is personal, but I think it's important. Like I still flinch when someone touches me, anyone, including my husband, because of the fact that for 20 something years, touch was negative. Like the cult that I was in, like we got modesty talks about covering ourselves up in case we tempted men to rape us. Like we had like, all the men gave awkward side pats, not full on hugs, because God forbid they felt our, our chesticles. Like, um, and 20 something years of that did not deconstruct overnight with one feminist studies class. I still jump every single time someone touches me and I don't see it coming. And I think for Emily, and if you had asked me during my traumatized period, I would have been like, I can't wait to be free of this, like as I'm deconstructing and then I'm free. And then I'm like, oh shit, I'm still not free. Because that, that is, that is the, the horror of trauma is that it does leave an imprint. So the Emily that like you, like you, like the Emily that comes to Canada will never be the Emily pre-Gilead. She can heal. She can do a lot of healing she can do a lot of the trauma work that like it takes to heal from something so traumatic but her her wife and oliver her son will fundamentally are forever changed 
and Emily is forever changed. Luke and June are forever changed, you know? Um, so, so I think that like, um, it'd be awesome to get Kate to kind of maybe do like a closeout episode with us because her focus is on what happens post these types of communities. And for everyone who's like, there's no Gilead, um, you should really research like FLDS cults and like deep evangelicalism, look at orthodox conservative Catholic communities. Like this is, this is real shit. Like this, there are, there are women who are in kind of mirror versions of Gilead all around you. Like, exactly. so. Yeah, Alabama, Missouri, et cetera. Steubenville, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah. Um, but again, uh, we will kind of dig into this for the entire season, that trauma and trauma healing is something that we, and we've talked, it's interesting that it comes up here and it comes up in the purge. Like, it's the fact that, like, this, we don't have the tools because the systems of oppression are working exactly how they're supposed to work, which is to leave us without tools for healing. So, um, so again, I admire Canada doing everything it can for Luke, Emily, and everyone. Exactly. <laughs> Getting back to the May Day mission that June was on, her little mini mission, it fails. <laughs> um, and people end up dead. And then you had a really good take on june having her own baptismal scene talk to me about that in this episode so the scene in which the mayday mission fails and the individual comes back and she's been shot and she ultimately dies in the basement um you see june's real almost baptism into the resistance like she they welcome her in but then all of a sudden they're like you know, now it's real, like people are going to die and she's, you know, going to be responsible for a lot of stuff because if she's taking the lead of which she is. But then when you really look at, you know, when she, of, of Joseph, right, June, you know, and Commander Joseph, you know, he comes down there and he says, clean it up, right? Like fix this. And so what she really does have to do is she does have to she is baptized through burial and there's another rain scene and she glances up after the burial and she looks to the sky, but the music that's playing and the silence of she's burying the body of the Martha that was killed in the mission. Um, it's almost like a baptism into the resistance of what she um, buys into. But I got this really understandable, chunk from june's acting and just from how they wrote it um does it remind that, you of a scene in a f in a film and book that we love well yes but religion comes back to june in some way i think and so let, let's touch on that yeah. um, first off third harry potter reference this is shell cottage and 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 harry bearing dobby himself Exactly. Uh, if you remember um, when Dobby, the house elf, and if you don't know Dobby, you shouldn't even be listening to us. Go read the fucking books. Um, Dobby gives up his life for his friends <laughs> um, <laughs> in one of the most devastating <laughs> scenes. Of, I don't know why I'm laughing. Of all of Harry Potter, um, and they they mag he magics them all out as a knife cuts through his heart. Right, and so they land at Shell Cottage. Uh, Hermione, Ron, uh, Harry, Luna, uh, Ollivander, and a couple other folks. And um, Bill Weasley says to Harry, 
you know, they all realize the significance of it, but he's like, well, like he's about to magic the tomb for Harry. And Harry goes, no, I'm going to fucking dig it myself. And like, I think that there is a, a parallel there that when, when we do the work of resistance, we cannot be blind to the fact that there will be moments where there is loss and we cannot desensitize, give me the word, bro. Desensitize. The pain and suffering. Like you don't get to magic the whole dump Dobby, cover it magically, and then you didn't have anything to do with it. Similar to like this Magic's woman. not going to make this easier. Exactly. Feel what it's like to bury this individual that meant so much to you. And I know June didn't have the same connection that Harry but had that, to But that woman was June, right? For, for yeah. She represents just someone similar to any of us. We're supposed to all be that woman if we're resisting. So I loved your take on the fact that like, that was a very important moment. For her. Because June becomes almost reborn in that burial. Right, right. Um, And closing out what worked in this episode. um, So Emily spends the whole episode trying to figure out, like, who am I? Like, am I never going to recover? Like, I'm scared. Like, I don't know myself. I'm, like, traumatized. I don't, I cannot pick up the phone. Um, Which is all understandable. Uh, but she does eventually pick up the phone and call her wife. And there is a beautiful shot from above the car where her wife picks up the phone and it's Emily immediately recognizes her voice immediately. And like her car just stops. It's like the whole world stops in that moment. And then every other car around her is like crashing, like not dramatically, but like every car comes to a halt as well. Right? Um, Yeah. And I think that is beautiful to show the ripple effects of what happens when when we are working through shit, right? Like if if you hurt someone and then they have to heal, like that hurt has ripple effects. The cars all stopping is a ripple effect of like Emily having been taken and coming back and whatnot. But I also love the fact that like her wife, nothing matters in that moment other than Emily's voice on the other line. Yeah. It, that whole scene is beautiful. And it just shows that these people's lives had to go on in the middle of all of this trauma. But, um, but that moment when that trauma ends in some way you see what that does like we all live and we all move on but it everything comes crashing and down you right? understand this too so like when you leave a toxic environment like whether it's like super rep- repressed madison wisconsin right or like a cult you leave and you continue to live but there's parts of you that mourn and miss the people you left behind, right? Yeah. Like, and I mean, you're, you're forced to keep living, right? But there is something to be said about the moment, like you pick, like if someone picks up the phone and is like, hey, it's me. And you've never, you never expected to get that call, right? Like there's something beautiful about the fact that like, there's this tiny glimmer of hope that we're talking about that like, not to quote Dumbledore, 
<laughs> those that love us really never leave us, right? And so even if you've lost someone to trauma and toxicity, there is always a chance that like, that there's a chance, there's a hope that they will come back or you will come back. Um, yeah. So uh, and hashtag, she's brilliantly by Claire Duvall. Oh, like, and uh, she, she's, I mean, she is a magnificent actress and the, the, her facial expressions alone are just like stunning. So hashtag, please go watch Toy Story for it deals with this. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's, this is a really short list. What didn't work for you from this episode? I will agree with you. This episode was, it was hard to find things that didn't work. Uh, you know, of, of, you know, of Whitford's uh, <laughs> blase nature to the Mayday and the whole Underground Railroad as house. He's like, it, it just seemed like, he's like, what, whatever, like just clean it. Like it just made no sense to me. So here is, we've been told by the show the fundamental architect of Gilead. He is the one who literally wrote the, the blueprints for everything. Joseph. Commander of Joseph. Joseph. Sorry. Uh, not of Joseph. You use Bradley Whitford, which is the character that <laughs> plays. <laughs> My brain. My brain. And I wasn't even drunk when I wrote the outline. Um, so Commander Joseph is the architect of all of this. So I need a little bit more which I mean, there, we've gotten a little bit more in the episodes to come, but like, I need a little bit more to understand how the architect of this whole motherfucking thing is like, yeah, sure, whatever, run the underground road. And also like why he wants to bring it down. Well, I don't know if he wants to bring it down. Or I, like, why is he complicit in this stuff? Here we go, exactly. Like, why did you, so if he helped Emily because she was smart, why? You did this, you, you did this. I need more. So I'm going to need a lot more background on, on him. Um, but I think it's coming. I mean, I think it's, we get a little bit more in episodes three and four uh, and five, but uh, not to the point where I feel like satisfied with understanding who he is. I do like that he is unpredictable because like those are the ones you need to keep an eye out for because he is clearly dissenting. Like he is clearly, like if he gets caught, he's on the wall. He's dead. He is so powerful that I don't think he thinks that. Um, but I need an emotional motivation. I'm going to take a wild guess that when he did all of this, he never expected his wife to break. And his wife seems to be broken watching. Like his wife seems to be not a reluctant participant. Like, not a an enthusiastic participant in Gilead. And I think that I will say that there are couples that could that if they transition out of of like religiosity at different times, it can be very traumatizing. Right. So his wife probably was like, this is bullshit. This is this is rape. This is bullshit. You're a monster. And that is maybe the seed that has created the man that we are meeting. Um but I need that confirmed, confirmed uh, that because that is a very powerful position for his wife to be in, even though she's broken, which is the fact that like, again, he didn't think it would impact him because his wife was safe. And like his wife is a human who just watched all of the women turn into cattle and is not okay, which in turn makes him realize that what he's done is not okay, but they're in too deep kind of is kind of what I think that's my prediction. So, so that's episodes one and two. <sighs> a lot. It's a lot. Blessed it's a lot. be under his eye, Marcy. Under his eye. <laughs> under his eye. Why? 
there's a part I always said when I finished because my dissertation that is now on hold um, until I feel like I'm not resisting every day in my daily life. Um, my dissertation, obviously, I've talked about this before, is on the Handmaid's Tale. I will get "Don't Let the Bastards Get You Down" tattooed on my body somewhere, eventually. Um, John, I'd like you to be there when I do it. <laughs> I'm happy to be there. It'll be on the other rib. My my right rib has uh, "We Are the Granddaughters of the Witches You Could Not Burn," which was symbolic of leaving the form of Catholicism that I left. So I feel like the other rib. Uh, and I, I do my ribs because I am fundamentally offended at Christianity's idea that I was made out of a rib. Um, so, but two great episodes, a great start to a season. Um, Amazing season. Very excited. Very excited about what's to come. Very excited to find out if, um, what's her face? Who plays, <laughs> I'm forgetting her name, uh, who plays Offred. What is her name? Off. Uh, no, not June, June. June, yeah. Who's the actress? Why am I blanking? Oh, Elizabeth Moss. It is rumored Elizabeth Moss is Tom Cruise's new girlfriend, which puts off and another spin on this. Thank show. you, everyone, for joining us on this episode kickoff for season four of the Pop Culture Theologians, which is covering season three of The Handmaid's Tale. We will be back. We will be dropping another episode of our recaps of episodes three and four. Make sure you're showing us some love on the social medias. And, you know, blessed be the fruit. Under his eye.